or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know what your bodies are, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee your sec- flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. So you may have noticed the title of this sermon. And I titled it as such, Not to be edgy, because if you know me, I'm I'm not edgy, but to make an initial point. Because in general, the subject of, and this will be a rated PG sermon, so if you had any kind of nervousness about your children being in here, everything's going to be okay, all right? If they haven't heard the word sex yet, that's a problem on you, not on me. So, But in general, the subject of sex in our Western culture is a subject that is met with mixed emotions, and this happens on both sides. Uh, it happens from inside the church, but it also happens uh, outside the church. Christians, surprisingly, have not done the best job handling the topic of sex. Mainly, we are known for our condemnation of it, uh, uh, hatred uh, towards certain, uh, certain groups of people, and shame even when the topic is breached. For instance, you don't answer this out loud, but how many of you grew up with the understanding that sex was dirty or wrong or shameful? How many of you grew up in churches that, had, that did some sort of uh, purity kind of programming, like True Love Waits, where you get a, we- a ring and uh, you, you wait for the one that you're going to marry, and that ring symbolizes that? Or maybe you were forced to read the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and maybe that's your, maybe that's your context. Well, the world, on the other hand, it's, it's really, it has not really done a good job either. Uh, It sees sex as merely transactional, something not to be tread upon by outside voices. Uh, The mantra tends to be, I am free to do what I want. And you can't say anything to me about that. And because these things have shaped us 
and are shaping us. Uh, sex and, and our bodies can be pushed aside and ignored only to be talked about in whispers and red-faced embarrassment. And this is why things go sideways. This is the problem here. Where, where sexual sin arises and misconstrued thoughts and desires about sex and about our bodies come from, it comes from a misunderstanding of the gospel. Not a misunderstanding of sex, not a misunderstanding of the body, but it begins with a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because in their arrogance, some of the spiritual in Corinth, the, the church that, that Paul is writing to, came to regard the freedom that they had in Christ as absolute. That, that caused them to believe that the physical body was of no value, destined for destruction, and they could do with it what they wanted, whenever they wanted, and with whomever they wanted. Everything is permitted, is what Christians were saying in Corinth. It's what they've come to believe. So Paul sets out in this part of his letter to, to reorient them in this vital area around the gospel. And he does this in three ways. He does this by showing them, one, that sex does matter. Two, that your bodies matter. And then three, why does it matter? Why does it all matter? Why does sex matter? Why, does your, why do your bodies matter? Why does it all matter? So sex matters, your body matters, and why does it all matter? So first, sex matters. Uh, I read that this was my beach read uh, this, this summer. It's a, uh, it, was, it was called Divine Sex uh, by the author Jonathan Grant, and it's excellent, but if you're reading by the pool or the beach, uh, expect uh, people to look at you, okay? So in his book, Divine Sex, and it's not what you think it is. So in his book, uh, Divine Sex, this author Jonathan Grant asks several questions in the very first chapter that I believe are questions that Paul has already answered in our text. So a couple of thousand years before Jonathan Grant writes a book, Paul has already answered these questions. But here's the questions that Jonathan asks. He asks, what is it about our cultural moment that has led to such a complex dysfunction in sexual relationships? In what significant ways is our secular context shaping our sexuality? And in response to this, what is the Christian vision of relationships and how can Christian leaders give that vision power in people's real lives? Great questions. So in verses 9 through 12, Paul explores some of what this means. Look at verses 9 through 11. Paul begins by asking, or do you not know that the, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immortal, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. So basically, what Paul is doing here in these verses is he is reminding his readers of who they once were. Paul is saying, you were people who have committed sexual sin. You are people who, who have lived in sin. These words and these practices defined who you were. 
And the reason he does this, the reason he reminds them of this is is because who they were in the past is not who they are in the present. But they were acting like they were. So the second part of verse 11, Paul says to them, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So so you have been changed by the gospel, and therefore everything about you is being changed as well. So your present state, Paul says, and if you're a believer in here today, this is true of you as well. You are washed by the blood of Jesus, just like we sang about. You are sanctified in Christ. You are justified in Christ, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. All those things are true about you as a Christian. So why is all of this important to our understanding of sexuality? Well, Jonathan Grant says, basically, our inability to perceive the influence of cultural misinformation is undermining the power of the Christian gospel to to guide and form people so they can walk its pathway to sexual maturity. And this is where the Corinthian Christians are at. And by and large, this is where we are at in the 21st century. Because because they and we have been unable to perceive the influence of cultural misinformation that is spitting at us uh, almost now constantly, every minute, every second of the day, depending on how much time you spend on social media and other different outlets. And it undermines the power of the gospel to guide us and to form us and to shape us. So they're simply falling in line with this cultural mantra, which is reflected at the beginning of verse 12 when Paul says, all things are lawful for me. So so in principle, this is true freedom, and this is a true statement. All things are lawful. We are free of inhibitions. We are free of restraints. And this is the basic mantra of, this, of our sexually progressive culture in a current that can easily sweep you away if you're not aware of it. So remember Paul's words in chapter 5 uh, when, he, when he tells the Corinthian Christians Uh, the way in which you solve this is not to kind of get out of the world. It's not to go off and start start monasteries. It's not to get away from the world and kind of in seclusion so the dirty old world doesn't touch us. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says to be in the world but not of the world, repeating Jesus' words, but to do it and live live in it for for God's glory. So, which means we have to learn how to live in this world as our Christian faith and the secular culture sort of bump up against each other. It's happening constantly in your life. I know it is. So anytime we go to the, to the beach, which we did just a few weeks ago, I always kind of give my kids the speech of, of uh, just riptide war- warnings. None of us have ever been caught in a riptide. Um, I don't even think we've actually even experienced one being close to us, honestly, that, that we're aware of. But I always just say, if you get caught in one, this is what you do. Never try to swim out of it. Always just kind of go with it. It's going to take you 
100 yards out to sea, and it's going to take you along the shoreline, and then it eventually break, and it's going to let you out. So that's always my, my spiel with them. So hopefully one day that'll save their life, and I'll make it on social media and all that good stuff. But anyways, in relation to what that means in our culture, just to illustrate it in this way, uh, in, in some ways we are swimming in uh, the ocean of the world. And those in the world has a riptide in which we are going up against. And it is very easy for us, if we are kind of walking about with no kind of thought in our brain, to get caught up in this current and to be taken out to sea. Now, there's different ways you can deal with this. You can give the warning like I give to my kids who are all strong uh, swimmers except for our two-year-old. But uh, you, can, you can just not go in the water and just play on the seashore. You can do that. You can wear a life preserver and all of these things. Um, and and you, can, you can avoid all of these things. But, but, but I think the, the wisest way as Christians living in a world like this is to be prepared with the right teachings about these dangers. So in verse 12, this is what Paul does. In verse 12, Paul rounds this expression of freedom out, the all things are lawful for me, when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So the phrase, all things are lawful for me, but it can also be translated uh, liberty to do all things, was actually a popular catchphrase in Corinth. So if if you're trying to say something to somebody about what they were doing and you just thought, man, that's kind of morally wrong, kind of makes me uncomfortable, that the proper Corinth response would have been, all things are lawful. You can't say anything to me. I'm not hurting anybody. I can do whatever I want as long as it's, as long as I am happy. So Paul takes this classic cultural expression and then brings it in line with Christian teaching. Because this, Paul wasn't dealing with the outside world. He wasn't dealing with the secular culture of Corinth. He was dealing with what was happening inside the church. And so he's having to reorient the Corinthians back to the gospel here. So he takes this and brings it in line with Christian, Christian teaching, essentially to say, yes, all things are lawful for you. But not all things are going to be helpful for you. All of these things that you are wanting to engage in and wanting to be involved in and wanting to use your bodies for are not all helpful, even though you're free to do them. Yes, you are at liberty to do all things, but to be dominated and controlled by them is a completely different story. So in other words... While you're free of restraints and inhibitions, this actually doesn't give you permission to do whatever you want. For one, whatever it is you do, there will be consequences to those actions that you commit. Because, because while all things might be lawful for you, they may not be lawful to society or even good for you. So this is why we have laws in our land that restrain us from from going too far above the speed limit or uh, stealing things from our neighbors or taking advantage of people in in the workplace. These, These restrain us from some of those freedoms that we do have. 
And if you want to say, yes, I'm free, I'm a, I can do whatever I want, and you cross the boundary of the laws of the land, yeah, you're free, but you are going to suffer the consequences of those laws. And it's the same in our life from day to day. So that's the first thing. Secondly, to say you are free to do anything is actually self-contradictory. When that thing you are doing actually turns into addiction. And then just so you know, just, just in case, uh, you know, you, I mean, maybe, you're, maybe you are addicted to something. Maybe, it, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it, maybe it is uh, sex that you're addicted to as well. But let me just say this. Once it's entered into an addiction, you are now being dominated by that. That's what Paul says. And you are actually no longer free. You are actually a slave to it. You need it. You, you can't live without it. And it's going to destroy you. So basically what freedom is, freedom is, n- is not a means to be served, but to serve. That is what we are to use freedom for, to, to, to serve others. So when it comes to sex, to treat it as something as purely physical, something, something separated from love, you are actually losing your freedom. You're not gaining freedom. Because believing that you can do with whomever and whenever or however you want actually goes against God's good design of how sex is intended and how you as a person are supposed to engage in it and enjoy it. And I believe that that is actually true freedom. That is what the Bible teaches us, that that is uh, uh, being in, uh, in God's good creation and following God's good laws is actually freedom for you, not binding. Living within the boundaries of God's good design to follow and listen to the one who created sex. I, I'm sure if you were able to get around Steve Jobs, if he, was, if he was still alive, and you were ready to get around Steve Jobs who, who invented the iPhone. Like, I know I have my iPhone. I know it's capable of lots and lots of things. I was trying to do something with it this morning and tried to get somebody else to help me. I had no clue what I was doing, and I'm, but I'm sure it could do it. And if I had Steve Jobs here who created the iPhone, he could probably help me enjoy the iPhone in so many ways that I don't even know. The same is true for God when it comes to sex. The one who created sex can help you enjoy it in ways that you would never even dream of. So the reason sex matters so much is because your body matters so much. And when I talk about your body, I am talking about your physical body, what you can touch right now, what you can see on other people. Your physical body matters to God. So the body is, is, Paul brings these things together in verse 13 when he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's not meant for that. It's not, it's not, it's not built for that. It's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So, so the conversation on the body here in these verses that, that Paul gives to us in verses 13 through 18 
couldn't be any more relevant to us than if it were written today. This was written a couple of thousand years ago, and it's still, it's still the tone of, of what we need to understand and believe as Christians. Because some of the major issues we grapple with in our Western culture, at least that relate to human sexuality that involve the body, things such as um, sex outside of marriage, um, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, and even body image, all come down to what you believe about the body. So the problem the Corinthians are having is that they believe the body to be merely a transient physical shell for the soul. That's all the body was good for. It's just carrying our soul. So this meant it didn't matter what you did, did to, or did with the body because it would eventually be destroyed. We would no longer have this physical shell because we wouldn't need it anymore. All we need is our soul is what they were coming to believe. So in our day, this has been referred to as personhood theory. And there's another wonderful book that I've been reading um, by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. And, And she explains it in this way. She says, personhood theory entails a two-level dualism that sets the body against the person as though they were two separate things merely stuck together. As a result, it demeans the body as outside to the person. So something inferior that can be used for purely pragmatic purposes. So that's what we believe in our day. We believe that, that the body, while it is together, it is also separate. And so because of that idea of separateness, we can do whatever we want to with our body. Which is exactly what Paul illustrates in verse 13. When he said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, another expression in the culture, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Here again, Paul begins by quoting another popular catchphrase from the culture that was actually shaped by the philosophy of Plato, who was the one who who truly kind of developed the idea that said it didn't really matter what you did with your body because your soul was the only thing that was truly important. So do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry because your body will be destroyed tomorrow which is something that has survived throughout history, you know, throughout the millennia, and has been subtly woven into the world in which we inhabit. So to to, to engage in same-sex behavior is actually a disassociation with the body. Uh, It's why something as tragic as transgenderism exists. That, that I can do whatever I want with my body as long as it makes me happy. As, all, as long as I think it's okay, as long as I believe myself to be this particular per- person, then I can do whatever I want to my body. It's also, it, just in case you're like, yeah, you're right, amen to that, Kevin, you know, homosexuals, people transgender. So before you get on your high horse about that, let me just say this next thing. It's also why some of us become obsessed with exercising and diets and Botox and plastic surgery 
and we chase the perfect body. We want a six pack or we want, you know, we want, you know, the biceps or uh, we want the nice hair or whatever it might be. Nancy Piercy, again, she in Love the Body, she's quoting a philosopher here, and she says, the training, toning, slimming, and sculpting of the body encourages an adversarial relationship to the body. These practices express the will to conquer and subdue the body and ultimately to be liberated from its constraints. So all of these things, we do all of these things or think so much about it so that, so that we, don't even, we don't even notice that it's affecting us. Some of you are probably surprised that I said something about your exercise and your body sculpting and your diets because we have allowed the influence of the culture and the world to enter in so subtly into our own hearts and minds but also within the church. So all of those things, homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, exercise and, you know, like trying to, 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 to go after the perfect body, all of that is a disassociation actually with the body. So another author, Lauren Winner, explains how this is played out amongst Christians. She says, the Christian story has very positive things to say about bodies, but throughout its history, the church has sometimes equivocated, so to beat around the bush, We Christians get embarrassed about our bodies. We are not sure whether they're good or bad. It follows that we are not sure whether sex is good or bad either. And the way in which Paul shows this inconsistency of this this line of thinking amongst the Corinthians, he kind of turns it on its head. And the way he does this is not by saying, that's wrong, stop doing that, or you're an idiot, that's not what, he doesn't do that here, he calls people idiots in other other, uh, books of the Bible, but he doesn't do that here, he doesn't say, stop doing that, that's wrong, that's evil, I can't believe you would do something like that, or, or whatever it might be. Instead of doing all of that, Paul points them to the resurrection. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So in other words, if God didn't care about bodies, Plato, Corinthians, Christ the King Church, why would he raise a body back from the grave? Why wouldn't he have just raised a, a spirit or, or whatever it is, this, or, or just the soul? But he, he rose the body. And he rose Jesus' body with all of the scars, with all of the reminders of what he had just went through when he went to the cross. He rose the body. Which is to say that what you do with your body does matter. which completely contradicts the philosophy of Plato. It completely contradicts the philosophy of our day that says, uh, do whatever, as long as it makes you happy and doesn't hurt anybody else, you can do whatever you want. God will raise up your body just as he raised Jesus' body. Your body matters eternally. 
which means that your body is not separated from your soul at all, but it's actually knit together. And this is why King David can say in Psalm 139, the, the famous verse that we like to quote uh, when it comes to pro-life issues, and I think it's a perfectly appropriate, appropriate verse for that. But when he says, for you created my inmost being, you created my soul, you gave that to me, O God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You, you put my body together as well. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God, do you believe that? God made you. He made you. And the way Paul drives this home is in verse 15 that deals with what we do with our bodies now. So Paul is continuing to come back to this. Look, yes, our bodies will be raised, but that doesn't give you any right to just kind of abuse your bodies now because you're going to be raised into uh, perfection and you're going to have, a, have a, a body of glory one day and all of those things. Paul says, this is what you do with your body now. This is how you are to think about your body now. When he asked the question to the Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So not only will your bodies be raised with Christ, so looking towards the future, your body will be raised with Christ. They are members of Christ now in the present. So this is the fifth time that Paul uses the phrase, um, do you not know that? He's, he's, he's already used it um, in verse 9, and he'll use it for a sixth time in verse 16. And he uses this phrase to rebuke his readers because they've forgotten basic teaching about the gospel. So essentially when he says, do you not know that, dot, 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 is saying like, you used to know this. This is something you used to believe. This is something you used to practice. Do you not know that you are joined to Christ? Do you not, do you not know that union with, this is what union with Christ means? It's not just spiritual, it's physical as well. As one commentator translates Paul's words here, have you forgotten that your bodies are the limbs and organs of Christ? So not only does, does God knit you together in your mother's womb, as a Christian, he knits you together with Jesus. And to remember this is to change the whole understanding of the value of your body. In verses 15 through 16, Paul illustrates it in, in, in kind of a graphic way, I think, uh, what sexual freedom and a downgraded view of the body is like for a Christian. Because this is what some of the Christians in Corinth were doing. They were going to see prostitutes because they thought, I can do whatever I want. I have freedom. I, my body's going to be destroyed. I can do whatever I want. And so Paul says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So this flies in the face of those who would say to this, casual sex is not that big of a deal. 
Uh, it doesn't have to come with baggage. Uh, I can do what I want with my body, and I don't need you to tell me what to do with my body. Back off. The theologian and Christian ethicist, he, um, Lewis Smedes, explains it in this way, and it's kind of an extended quote, um, but he explains it this way, I think, really well for our modern ears to hear. He says, quote, there is, <clears throat> there is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. Afterward, the two people seldom feel the same way toward each other again. They may love each other as never before. They may resent each other. They may feel comfortable with each other. But after intercourse, the relationship is not what it was before. And that's because what we do with sex shapes what we are. What we do with our bodies, we do with ourselves. Sexual intercourse is a personal, life-uniting act, and so the demand for continence or self-restraint is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual saints. It is respect for reality as we know it. It's respect for reality and how God created it to be. So this is, this is to say that something happens in sex, both to your physical body, but also to your soul as well. Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24 when, when God declares that the husband and wife will become one flesh. So this oneness is not to be thought of merely as sexual union, although it certainly includes that. That's what God intended it to mean. But in, in Hebrew teaching, the, the term flesh referred not only to the physical body, but also to the whole person. So it wasn't just sex that you were engaging in, but you were engaging, in, uh, engaging with the whole person. And so Paul compares this one flesh union, not directly to husband and wife. He's not just giving them a lesson in purity and says, here's your true love weights ring, wear this and don't have sex until you're married. And that's it. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is giving them a cosmic vision of the good life. Paul is saying, Paul is, and he does this by comparing the one flesh union, not to husband and wife, but to the union of the believer and the Holy Spirit. This is why sexual sin is so devastating. Because it affects the entire person through and through. And some of you know that, tragically. Verse 17 and 18. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So, it's very easy to listen to a sermon like this, and we're only through two points, but it's very easy to sit through this and still be unconvinced that there could possibly be a better way. You might be saying, or you may, maybe you're, you've been sitting there hoping that I was going to give you uh, sex advice 
you know, so that your, your spouse could hear it or whoever it might be or whatever, um, and you're disappointed in that. But again, that wasn't the point of the sermon. You might be saying, well, I have casual sex every week with my boyfriend or girlfriend and, or random hookups uh, that I engage in, and they seem to enjoy that arrangement. Or maybe you're uh, married and you're addicted to pornography or not married and addicted to pornography. Maybe you use pornography in your marriage because you think it helps you sexually. And you say, back off. This seems to be a good arrangement. Everybody involved seems to be happy about this. It's no big deal. And I would argue with the unbeliever that's in the room who might be thinking something like that, that no matter what current pop philosophy you might be following, and even if you don't know the philosopher's name, you are following some sort of worldly philosophy. You are living by some sort of belief system. But whatever it might be, what remains to be true is that people cannot disassociate their souls from what they do with their bodies. You can't do it. It's impossible. And over time, it all will begin to crumble. It might be crumbling on you right now. To the Christian and to the non-Christian, I would say, listen to why it matters in verses 19 through 20. Why does sex matter? Why does the body matter? Why do you matter? Why does it all matter? So a philosopher named Charles Taylor says that our personal and social identity is being shaped primarily within what he calls the modern social imaginary, which could simply be described as this, described as the status quo of the day, something that everyone seems to accept and believe and live out, and everybody's okay with it. Nobody talks about it. Nobody asks questions about it. Nobody challenges it, the modern social imaginary. And even so, it's something that we are more influenced by than we would like to think we are. And because this exists within our world, like the Corinthians, we need to continually be reoriented within the neighborhood of the gospel. We need to constantly come back to the gospel. Again, the writer Jonathan Grant in Divine Sex says we need to develop a Christian social imaginary. And the way Paul does this for us is to remind you just how valuable you are. He doesn't give us a set of rules. He doesn't give us, give us a list of do's and don'ts, and if you, if you kind of can check these boxes off consistently and more often than you don't check them off, then you'll win the day. Paul doesn't do that. He reminds the Christians of who they are. And he says this in verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here Paul says two things about you, Christians. One, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the third person of the Trinity. 
And this was a radical thing to say in the first century. This is a radical thing um, for a, a, a Jewish man like Paul to say, but because to call anything besides an actual temple uh, a temple, a place where the Spirit of God dwelt, was revolutionary language. And so Paul was using this revolutionary, radical language to make this strong points because he wants, he wants them to know and he wants us to know just how special your body is. That it's not just a shell. That it's not just something that can be used for whatever you want because your body is where God has chosen to live. And the very thing he has chosen to make a part of himself and to use for his glory. And he does this because he wants to be with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of the universe wants to be with you? He wants to be with you and he wants you to be his and him to be yours, not just for a moment, but forever. So that's the first thing. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is you were bought with a price. So to illustrate this, I'll point back to uh, Hosea chapter 3 that Wyatt read for us earlier from the Old Testament. So if you're unfamiliar with this book of the Bible, it's a wild story, just like most of the prophets, uh, the the prophetic books in the Old Testament. It's a wild story, but uh, Hosea was a prophet that God called to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer, Great baby name. That's a joke. Do not name your baby Gomer. Um, But an unfaithful woman named Gomer, and he does this, as he often did with, with prophets, to demonstrate both Israel's unfaithfulness to God and God's unrelentless love for Israel. And so in the scene in chapter three that that was read for us, Gomer, his wife, is being sold on the auction block for crimes and sins that she committed, mainly that are rooted in her unfaithfulness to her husband. And so she's being sold. And essentially, uh, she, stands, she stands awaiting her fate on the, on the auction block, which would essentially be some sort of slave, probably a sex slave, for the rest of her life. So what she was about to experience was going to be hell. And then as she's standing there, she hears the voice of the man, Hosea, the man whom whom she has cheated over and over and over again. She hears his voice. And it's not a voice of anger. It's it's not a voice that is spitting words of hate or disdain or, uh, you know, accusatory word, and that woman's a whore, that woman has cheated on me, she deserves this. He doesn't do that. He actually does the complete opposite. He starts bidding on her. And wins the bid. He, he wins this woman back. He, he pays the price for his bride because that's who she ultimately is. To take her home with him once again. To, to love her and to cherish her once again. Even with all of her baggage, even with all of her, her brokenness, even with her broken body. Which is to say, no matter what you've done or, or are currently doing with your body, God has paid the price for you. You're the one standing on the auction block. You're the one awaiting your awful fate. 
which will be hell. And God pays the ultimate price for you, his bride. And he has done that by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, mind you, in a real human body into the world, into the physical world, and to the cross to pay the ransom for your sin and mine. And this, friends, is what truly frees us. Is what Christ has done on the cross and in his resurrection. And Paul says, this is what you do in return. This is all we ask. Glorify God in your body. Bring God glory in your body. Bring God glory in how you, how you look at sex. Bring God glory in how you use your body. And when you make this your loftiest goal, when you make glorifying God in everything, when you make it your loftiest goal, it will order everything else you want to do with and for your body. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that the Bible is not this antiquated book that has no relevance for us anymore, but that it is more relevant to us than any pop philosophy or any sort of Christian guru, um, guru's advice that, that comes on the shelves at Barnes & Noble. God, we're so thankful that you give us a, a, a deeper and truer uh, and righteous vision for both sex and for our bodies. These things that you have created uh, as good and so, God, I pray that you would transform our minds, help us to be uh, aware of and conscience to, conscious to the, the reality of the world in which we live, and that we would honor you by glorifying you in our bodies. And we can only do this through Christ, who came in a body to save us from our sins. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.